This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where Thanksgiving reservations are now open, and this is a great idea, whether you order your entire spread from Zupan's and pick it up and bring it home, or order some specific items just to help you along. Yeah, we've been talking about this for years now. Having Zupan's Markets make your celebrating easy and delicious. And we're talking about reserving a free-range turkey, maybe doing the complete turkey dinner, or as you just pointed out, Chris, kind of piecing it together with sides, maybe some local delicious pies. Uh, You can make your reservations right now on their website, zupans.com. You need to do this before Sunday, November 20th. And here's something I would recommend, Chris, that I I think this might be the first year they're doing this. Uh, I know they've had a Taste of Thanksgiving event where you could go on one day and taste some stuff. Right now, every Thursday at the hot bar, you can go get a taste of Thanksgiving. Maybe t- taste the the turkey, some sides, the mushroom gravy. Check that out every Thursday at your local zoo. Yeah, and you're going to like it enough to want to get something. I'm sure of that. Mm-hmm. The other yep. thing you may want to serve at Thanksgiving is, and you may be aware of Zupan's Farm to Market program, where they've partnered with quite a few breweries to, to brew their own branded beer. But now their second in the series of of cider is there farm to market cider from Bauman's cider um it is uh, it is something you might want to serve at thanksgiving dinner i know my kids over the years when they weren't really big drinkers cider was something that was uh, kind of in between that they enjoyed and i think it goes well with uh, thanksgiving dinner too so check out the farm to market uh barrel aged estate cider at zupan's available now and of course, uh, use zoopans.com as your resource. All this information we're talking about can be found there. You can order your turkey dinner there as well. You can also find great recipes. I was just looking at a really great stuffing recipe. So maybe your stuffing recipe isn't that great, but I can guarantee you the Zoopans Markets one is. So go check that out at zoopans.com. And you can find that at any one of Zupan's three locations, which would be in Lake Oswego, McAdam, and of course, I think their flagship store, but I don't, I don't know, they're all very nice, but the store on West Burnside, which is closest to most people who might be listening to this podcast, maybe. Check it out. All right, here it is. Time once again. It is Portland's Food Scene Podcast, right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures. I'm co-host, Court Johnson, live today from my kitchen. And I'm in my, I'm sort of looking at my kitchen and I'm looking at my kitchen with no heat and no hot water today for the second day and it won't be here till tomorrow, but um, that's okay. I have the boilers out. Pardon me? The boilers out? Well, the boiler is, it's a circulator. I don't know. Oh, okay. This is, you know, it's a very complicated system. It's uh, radiant heat. So yeah. I just took a picture of what was making the noise and sent it to the the heating and cooling people yesterday. So they're supposedly going to be here tomorrow to uh, fix it up. But it's okay. You know, there are worse things. And uh, there's space heaters. And I'm going into Portland today anyway to return visit to Kennard, Oregon City, which I'm really excited about. I went for business the other day and then decided it was so good. 
I needed to invite Renee and go back with her and enjoy an, ev- an evening that I know she would love. That place is amazing. Oh, oh my God. That's the first time I've used the word court. Yeah. The first time that we may have maybe have noticed. That's right. But in this yeah. case, I think it's, uh, yeah, no, I guess everybody thinks the word is appropriate whenever they use it. But no, it is, uh, I thought canard was just delicious and fantastic. And I, I went in with those expectations anyway, but it's always, mm-hmm. uh, it puts an exclamation mark on those expectations when you actually are eating the food and you remember how good things can be. I don't eat as well as I used to. Maybe when we go to Spain, but I'm not out as much as I used to be. Yeah. That was No, Canard is one of the it, it is one of those special places. I have yet to meet anybody that hasn't walked out of there just blown away by just how great pretty much everything yeah, is. Yeah, well, that was the way on the one on Burnside, but somehow this one they did it again and uh mm-hmm. it's it's fantastic. So when I used to go out a lot, that was 40 pounds ago. So 40 to 50. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of happy that, that it's, everything's a little more special to me now. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, in this podcast, I love this podcast, by the way, if someone stays with us. As a matter of fact, our guest, Ron Cormai, who is the co-founder and the... Um, well, he's the guy at right now Steelport Knives, and also uh, he's the one who built Finex to where it was and sold it to uh, Lodge. And mm-hmm. um, really fascinating guy. If you look at his resume, um, he was a lead engineer for HP Printers. I don't know if that was the actual title, but he was really in charge of a lot. And I start the podcast off by giving him a little bit of shit about that. And also at, um, he was also. What did you, did you have a, did you have an issue with an HB printer once and you once. wanted to talk to the guy in charge? Once. Oh, all the time. Okay. <laughs> I'd say, you know, I've sworn at them a zillion times and uh, I just trashed one. I just chucked it and started all over. And I always start with all HP right. again because I always hope that they're going to be better. Anyway, this has nothing to do with Ron. And is he said he sure. shouldn't have to take the the responsibility for a company he doesn't work for anymore uh, right so anyway, anyway but the fact of the matter is he's had he's a really brilliant guy he's had some incredible um he's got an incredible educational resume still going he's an adjunct professor at both psu and oregon state and he's developed these fine products and why was i bringing this up again why was I? Uh, what was it that I was about to address? I can't even remember now. He was a brilliant guy. No, no I, there's a reason I brought this up. Um, oh shit, court! Just edit that. Yeah. Well, how about this? Oh, and I can't even remember why I started going through his resume, but it's appropriate anyway because he's an incredible guy. So. Um, I was really impressed with his thoughts and ideas and his, uh, basically, a lot of this podcast is, and you'll see why I said that, an ode to Portland. Um, He really, you know, Portland is is a 
really strong thread through all the products. And he talks a lot about what makes Portland unique in this podcast. So I really enjoyed speaking with him. And at some point, I'm going to remember exactly why I started down that track right now. But um, <clears throat> maybe I won't. Um, he alludes to something in the podcast that I was going to mention. All right. Well, forget it, Court. By the way, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've, if you recall last week, I was sick. I'm still kind of on the tail end of it. My my voice is still a little deeper than it should be, but I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Yeah, no, I think your voice sounds fine, and I didn't notice it last week when you were actually, I think, referring to yourself as sexy. I think I think it's one of those yeah I think it's one of those things where like when you when you get kind of some sinus action going on you start hearing yourself in a di- like it it kind of bounces around your own head more than than uh, you normally would hear it and so you hear yourself differently right. and other people don't don't necessarily hear it that way um, but I will say I got pretty sick over the weekend to the point where I ended up going into uh, an urgent care because no. I had I had I'd been taking the the rapid you know COVID tests at home and those were all negative and we determined that the urgent care it wasn't COVID but um, I was convinced that I because I was just in pain um, from the sore throat I was convinced that I had something like strep throat or some sort of you know bacteria and uh, uh, come to find out I just had a good old fashioned head cold. And uh, I was diagnosed as being a big wimp, and uh, was 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 sent to, sent to the pharmacy to to grab some uh, Zyrtec. And then I found out, and this is something I was pretty excited about, is that you no longer have to have a prescription in Oregon to get just regular old Sudafed. Oh, like you do pretty much. Yeah, you used to have to have an actual prescription for it. Now you just have to go ask the pharmacist for it. So and they have to go unlock I'm it. Unlock up. it probably. But you know, you yeah, left so many the you left so many floaters there because I have just been sort of binging on Between Two Ferns. So mm-hmm. do you watch that at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. We, we, we were actually watching, we watched two or three uh, episodes over the weekend. Yeah, so, yeah. so did, uh, <laughs> have you watched the, the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch one, which he actually gets yes. to benefit yep. Cumberbun at some point? But anyway, yeah. it's so many things you said there that I could just throw back at you in a very caustic mm-hmm. manner, and I thought that would be fun, but out of context, it's probably not going to work. So, sure. uh, and, you yeah. know, we're in Portland where people don't really get I don't think some dark, sarcastic humor, right? Uh, as much as others, they, maybe you need to put up the red flag that says this is going to be dark and sarcastic. Then maybe they'll get it. But if you just well, throw it out there, yeah, and, and it's one thing. It's like if if you if for example if if the, if we were a comedy podcast, mm-hmm. then maybe the the expectation would be there. But you know, people are probably not tuning tuning in to hear you and I slight jokes towards each other though i gotta say i I think we're pretty funny well i don't know about that but it's it's here's the thing we have we're both well no you are a professional a radio professional so and i have hosted a podcast for eight years so i mean what i'm what i do i don't i can't say i'm good at it but i talk I'm pretty good at having a conversation. The quality of that conversation, I don't know, but I think it's good. And I just remembered why I started thinking of this, because it is apropos for where we are right now. And if Ron's listening, he's going to, I hope, laugh a little bit. But he surmised, he asked us, how long do people stay with the podcast? 
which is mm, a yeah. which is a very appropriate thing to ask right now after we're going through this. But um, you know, we have data to show. Of course, people don't get all the way to the end. But you know, he said we're bucking the trend here. You know, because the trend now is maximum two to five minute attention span, maybe thirty seconds. If you look at TikTok videos, they're fifteen seconds. They don't even complete the thought anymore right but you know i thought about it after you know i told them i said i don't i we know that people that most people don't get all the way to the end which is eh, that's kind of sad because there are some good things that come out at the end of these podcasts but then i thought about it and there are a lot of podcasts that are an hour hour and a half now so those people have access to data and they're big companies so they're doing it and so they must be listening too so in answer indirectly to ron this is my post podcast thought and uh i'm glad people do listen period yeah yeah no i i you know the 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 thought that everybody stays all the way through the end is you know is not realistic to the point where uh you know my wife goes to a lot of those conferences chris where they talk about podcast advertising and one of the big movements is within the industry is to stop selling the post rolls that uh, people put on the end of podcasts, the the commercials that run at the very mm-hmm. end, because th- there, there's that you know it's just hard to show value in those. Anyway, we don't run those, so we, we don't used have to, to worry about and it. we decided not to. So yeah, for that and, very reason, it's just kind of also like, listeners should know we've kind of we haven't been very proactive in generating additional sponsors for the podcast because we kind of think that maybe that won't be a good idea. So. Um, so we're happy. We're so happy we have zoo pants and ringside. But I have an, a, another idea that I'll discuss with you later. Um, okay. Uh, regarding sponsorship. But yeah, and you know, I go back to my days in radio when I used to listen to that, the, our inept management team at, uh, I'll mention it, WPLR in New Haven. Um, mm-hmm. and, but part of the industry. St- industry talk was how many commercial breaks listeners could stand in an hour before they tuned out. And they thought they had empirical data to back that up. But man, it was 17 in those days, right? 15 to 17 commercial breaks. I don't think people are aware, but they have the ability to, I don't know if they know, people know they can do this. You have the ability in a podcast to move forward but we hope we keep the commercials interesting enough to at least keep you with sure. us for a minute to listen to yeah. messages right but anyway you and i don't have corporate Oof. board meetings and beat each other up over nope. how much advertising we have nope. and we just we just want it to sound good yeah we just want it all to, we we want people to uh, like it and we also are not this is not 60 minutes we're not looking to piss people off and you know what we haven't as far as i know Anybody's mm-hmm. welcome to chime in with what pisses them off. No, forget it. Don't bother with that. <laughs> All right. So listen. Chris, what are you doing? So listen, we have one of my favorite podcasts here. And speaking of timing, it's going to last more than an hour because Ron is very fascinating and um, uh, he's got a lot to talk about. I am a huge fan, and you are too. I know this of Finex products. They're mm-hmm. really special, and he goes into why they're special and the thought that went into every aspect or most all aspects of that product and selling it and all those good things. And now we're looking at Steelport, which is just 
an incredible product. In fact, arguably, maybe, according to Ron, and I know that's biased, but he he has support, he has data to support it and information to support it. The best knives in the world made here in Portland. So um, really cool to talk to him. And also what I marvel at is how quickly Steelport came to be. We had his partner in the business, Eitan Zayas, on not long ago, twice. But when he kind of started it, that wasn't long ago. And now they've got a full complement of knives and a beautiful butcher block that, of course, I started salivating over the minute I saw it. And um, it didn't take long. It was from COVID to now. And we're still in COVID. So the beginning of COVID or mid-COVID to now. How are we going to refer to this period in the future, Court? That uh, the the dark ages. I don't know. Yeah, well, like, you know, we have nine eleven, right? That's a that's a a, a marker in our everybody's sure. life. Yeah, pre and post. So, yep. Yeah, we talk about so some. Yeah, you, so yes, so you do. Yeah, yeah, you have pre you have pre pandemic, you have pandemic, and then um, you know we don't know if we're do we post pandemic yet. No, is this pandemic light? Not to make light of <laughs> yeah, it, but that's, I, I don't that's know. good. Pandemic light. That's yeah. where we are now. Yeah. So, at any rate. Uh, I'm looking down 16 minutes. Please, everybody, thank you for bearing with us to get to Ron Cormai of Steelport Knives. I think you're really going to enjoy him and, uh, and his product, too. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupans Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years now, Ringside has been providing the best in steaks and has been the home for the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Now featuring dining in their updated dining room and al fresco in one of the nicest outdoor dining spaces in the city. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com and while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about the exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. So yes, as I said, Ron, you are the first guest that I had full confidence uh, that you'd be able to log into this system, and you have, and uh, you know, I don't want to start by putting you on the defensive at all, but having read your resume and seeing that you were the lead or head, however you want to put it, engineer on HP OEM printers, I will just let you know, I don't know how the timing lines up with that. But man, I've I've sworn out that person uh, a few times in my life. Uh, however, I'm also very mindful of the fact that these are first world problems when technical issues come about, and we do have printers and we have computers and all these things that we can do are incredible, including having you on the podcast this morning. This way, yeah. Good morning, uh, Chris. I. To, uh, love nothing more than starting the meeting with trying to stand uh, and trying to support and 
<laughs> defend the whole uh, industry and uh, technology <laughs> world in the front of a food podcast and uh, <laughs> that's, that's uh, why we've been around eight that's why we've been around eight years because we make it so comfortable for the guests right off the bat <laughs> that's why you had to go as low as me I, I get it okay I get it <laughs> no but I, I have to say reading your resumes and and having a conversation with you last week is a bit I, I, the word isn't daunting, but uh, and I, it, it's not intimidating, but it's it causes one to be in awe. How about that? That's very good. Um, with some of the thing, the, many of the things you've done, and I'm sure what you've mentioned and what I've read isn't even close to all of it. But you know, you uh, you are an engineer, and. Um, you're not, uh, I mean, it's a serious engineer. You, you, th I'm thinking about all the things I've touched and I've used that have to do with, uh, your work, which would be, uh, HP. We just mentioned you were in charge of printers. I just got another new one because the last one didn't just stopped working. Um, and that's okay. I'm not asking you to take responsibility for it, but these are things that we all use. And then Logitech also. I've used a lot of Logitech products as well. And I'm a huge, huge fan of Finex. So now we're getting into the zone where you expected to be in yeah. this morning. <laughs> and uh, I just visually and uh, from hearing descriptions, uh, I would imagine if I had Steelport products, I would love them as much as I love my Finex products that you developed. So it's... It's really a uh, a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast this morning. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of places we could go. Um, but let's talk a little bit. Let, why don't we start with your background? And I want to lead up to um, to Steelport with what, you know, what you're doing now that's relevant to this podcast and our listeners and the the topics that we cover. But you know, what, what caused you, were you just, at what age did you realize you had this, uh, this ability? You know, I know my son at nine, we could see he was going to be doing something online in the, you know, late nineties. When did you discover it? Because there wasn't, you're a little older than my son and the, the technology wasn't around to have you know that. Well, I think that's a uh, great place uh, to a start. I think uh, it's, uh, really hard for except for a few people have met uh, uh, not many people that have actually been able to predict their long-term directions but the innate interest and and uh, passions come out early uh, the, the way I kind of look back it was kind of a uh, I remember on the cooking side I remember uh, standing in the kitchens uh, uh, kitchen next to my mom and waist high and uh, not necessarily trying to learn cooking, but I was waiting for the meat to be cooked the right place. We're going to steal a piece of meat uh, before, it, you know, uh, turmeric or some other uh, spices that I didn't like would be added uh, to the dish. And little I knew that that was a great formative uh, times for cooking because uh, later on, uh, I moved around the world uh, on my, my, by myself uh, when I was 15, lived in uh, Switzerland, uh, uh, Germany and a year in, in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia before moving to Corvallis to finish up my high school. And during that time frame, obviously, I had to cook for myself. And as a teenage boy, I had not spent any time cooking, but now all of a sudden I was faced into actually for survival. 
and sustenance I had to cook. And I remember looking back at those interests sitting next to my mom's and figure out where she adds the stuff. I try to recreate uh, those meals. So uh, my passion without my interest, the tur- without the turmeric. No, I went and found the turmeric. I think that local uh, whatever uh, the German version. Oh, you used it. You you learned to you, you learned yeah. to appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I just follow the instructions because you make it without it a couple of three times, then uh, doesn't come out quite right at the end you go okay there was a reason for that addition <laughs> right mom knows best of course you learned that exactly. at 15 exactly. but I, I don't mean to interrupt you but it's hard for me to leave this sitting there that you left on your own or you i don't know yeah we did leave at 15 what was that all about that you took off and you know went to switzerland who does oh, that at 15 yeah it's probably a, a similar uh, stories to a lot of uh, uh uh, folks that have uh, come from different countries, but uh, uh, I was born in Iran, and uh, I did, it was a few years after the revolution, so that was a quite experience to live through a revolution. Uh, but uh, the way it worked is that after 15, it turned 16, uh, you could not leave the country because it was uh, like a lot of countries you had to serve in military. Uh, so that was kind of my last window of opportunity to leave. Uh, otherwise, I couldn't leave until I was probably like 21 or 22. And uh, I wanted to explore. I wanted to study in a foreign uh, country. And uh, so made a uh, kind of a big leap. And uh, the only country that let me in was Switzerland. So <laughs> I went to Switzerland. And, uh, and then we had uh, my uh, uncles and aunts lived in Germany. So... Kind of that got tough in Switzerland, so moved over to Germany. Then realized I really wanted to be in an English-speaking country. And my brother at the time had been moved into uh, moved to Oregon, so I came to British Columbia, that was closest uh, to Oregon, and then uh, did the final move to Corvallis. And I just felt very comfortable with Corvallis, so I ended up getting my high school degree there and my BS, MS, and my doctoral PhD all from. Uh, Oregon State University and Corrales, the high school, Kirsten Valley High School. Uh, so I became kind of Oregon native, and I've really, really worked hard to keep my accent. I hope I'm trying to, you know, after so many years, it's really hard to keep your accent, but I think I've managed it well. <laughs> no, I think, you're, I think you're doing fine. How long did it take you to get to the PhD? I'm guessing it's not, wasn't the prescribed amount of time. Uh, it was actually uh, interesting. Uh, it took me uh, exact the same time as uh, everybody else. It took me 10 years. Uh, And uh, the difference was that uh, I did my BS in two and a half years and then my master's in nine months. uh, And then uh, my PhD, I did while I was working uh, full time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The company was Planar Systems in Beaverton. uh, So we were working on this place. I got a chance to get my doctorate while I was working full time, uh, which was a a fun uh, thing. I recommend this strongly for people who want torture and uh, and isolation from family and friends is really good good practice. <laughs> yeah, well, it kept you busy. That's for, that's that we know. So, um, so you had you had a degree, and then obviously you're in Beaverton, and you're around certain technology companies, and that's where you made your way. There, I would you know at a fairly young age, you were a planar, and then went, you know, ended up at at. Uh, HP and yeah. others as well. So, but in the back of your mind were things like cooking implements, things in the kitchen. 
Uh, cooking was always in mind. I mean, uh, even in college, uh, the way we uh, learned cooking and was copying uh, uh, each other. Trying the nice thing about college time is you can do a lot of experiments. It kind of reminds me a little bit about Portland uh, restaurant scenes. We are allowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I love about Portland is that you know we are allowed to experiment. In college, you have a lot of uh, willing subjects, uh, the hungry college students. That doesn't matter what you cook. Uh, and they're very forgiving. They, exactly. 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 <laughs> so, uh, like one of my uh, uh, favorite current dish uh, that uh, I cook, and uh, it's kind of a top of the list for my family when they have requests, is my curry. And uh, that curry, I kind of leveraged a friend of mine that spent 30 days straight, the whole month, cooking different versions of curry. And he experimented with every possible thing you could possibly imagine and landed in a really good curry that kind of we finally perfected it and made it mine uh but those are stuff that you know who who has time to make the same dish every single night for 30 days and not get sick of it so that was kind of the experimentation phase but i think the i'm um as much interested in the food business for the uh, for the food um industry for the meals and culinary aspect as business aspect and my business aspect uh, came out at Planar Systems. When uh, I was at uh, Planar, it was a small company. I think I was employee less than 40, whatever it was. I was with that company when we were IPO. I spent three years learning Finnish as we were acquiring a company in Finland. And then I was given opportunity to lead an effort around uh, virtual reality and kind of advanced area in there. And was able to get funding from DARPA and Boeing, some big amount of money. And I was given opportunity to be general manager of that group. I was I was excited at 20-something, ability to run a di- uh, division uh, of making, with the target of making 100,000 of these computer systems a year. Uh, that was unbelievable. I never forget, I went home on Friday. And over the weekend, I thought about it and said, I do not know the first thing about how to run it business you know how do you hire operators for production how do you market this thing how do you procure parts and monday i with my tail between my leg i went back to work and said i cannot accept this even though they had trust in me uh so uh after a couple of weeks of going back and forth they agreed i helped hiring my replacement and then uh went out to the biggest manufacturer in the world that I was aware of, which at the time was Hewlett Packard, between the printers and um, and computers, uh, they were the biggest consumer manufacturing, at, you know, millions of quantities. I figured I go and learn from the best. Uh, so I started 13 years really rotation uh, through HP, learning from the best in the industry. Started from uh, procurement, production, quality, got trained on Six Sigma Black Belt, uh, marketing, and then last five years, I was at HP. I was actually in San Diego. That's the only time I've been away from Portland region. Uh, went to San Diego for And you five came years. back. Yep. It's hard to, you got Portland buggy. It's really hard to stay away from it. But there I, I managed the big group of, you know, uh, over 100 people and, you know, $25 million of budgets and things like that. Uh, but the whole aim was um, really, for me, was training uh, of can- uh, learning how to run a company. What does it take to be a successful small company? 
So moved back to Northwest, got a couple, a couple more couple of years for Logitech Audio uh, Division, and then 2010, I said, okay, it's time for me to uh, exercise and see if I build any muscles. So joined a, a small company, a general manager uh, called Lens Baby. They're still in Southeast Portland. A great couple of owners, and they trusted me with the company. I was successful. In a couple of years, we were able to turn, turn around the financials, double the business, the increased hiring, went from uh, kind of uh, losing negative cash flow to positive cash flow, and go, hmm, maybe I've learned something. And so since 2010, I've been involved in small company, a combination of high-tech and non-high-tech high tech you know as you mentioned i've been vp of engineering for everything from wireless power uh being you know uh cashierless um, yeah cashierless uh, grocery store like if amazon go that you're familiar with it uh run groups that develop those and i've also been in beauty device industry as vp of engineering and ceo uh, for a couple of uh company and uh, involvement with a company called Clarisonic in Redmond. But my heart and soul was kind of important. I never, with all the jobs in, uh, you know, West Coast, I did not move out of Portland and I uh, had opportunity, came across opportunity in 2012 um, with uh, my business partner uh, in the Finex, um, Mike. He had this idea on a piece of paper and, you know, with a cast iron skillet and, um, uh, I looked at that and it looked pretty interesting, but who wants a new cast iron uh, uh, type thing? I was well, passionate also, about it. <laughs> I find it kind of ironic that you were just going in the forefront of technology, everything that was you know, in the future and developing the future, and then to go back to uh, uh, cast iron, which is about as rudimentary as it gets in, in history of of mankind in terms of, you know, someone must have discovered that years ago, uh, thousands of years <laughs> ago. thousand years, yeah. And, and here you are uh, <laughs> applying a lot of what you learned to that. I, I, so talk a little bit about, yeah, exactly, continue with how you um, continue to develop that, found it interesting, and, you know, what, what your vision was, and was the final result of that uh, close to the vision that you had, which would be selling it. No, uh, very, uh, very good, uh, very good point. I, I, even though I had always been using cast iron, my approach, my entry into getting excitement about uh, Finex was actually through a different angle from the uh, being local and manufacturing. Uh, the genesis, the trigger point for me was that uh, one night I was watching Shark Tank, and uh, the there were a couple of guys there that were trying to uh, convince and get money funding for a new uh, gadget that they have that would go in the back of the truck and unfold to hold stuff and you know fold back to be out of the way. And every one of the sharks loved it. But when they asked these two guys, where are you going to build the, this um, item? They said, in our hometown in Ohio. And every single shark turned it down, saying that you have to go to China. You're going to fail trying to do it in the U.S. And I vividly remember my wife had to save our TV from me throwing stuff at the TV and going, I'll invest. This is crazy. I think, you know, and not only I think, I know we can build manufacturing. And to put it in perspective, 2012 and that time frame, 
uh, had come up from large companies. And in, if you look at late, um, uh, you know, up to 2010, there was a lot of transfer of technologies to overseas. And I had seen myself, uh, you know, laying people off and laying production, uh, actually in Vancouver site, we had a large operation here, production that we just had sh- uh, shut down a few years before that. And I said, this is time for us to own and step up. And I said, why I'm throwing stuff at TV? We have this concept of Casar and let us do it. Uh, little I knew how much work it was, but also how much pleasure it was going through it. Um, so that was kind of the genesis uh, for Finex. And the part that most surprised me as we got into Finex was not, you know, we expected to be difficult. I expected to have some level of support uh, locally and nationally. But what really surprised me was the emotional connection that the customers had with our product. It was the level of emotional connection that other businesses, our suppliers, our partners, our retailers, they were going out of their way to support us. Uh, you know, I had, by then I had worked 20 years in high tech industry and I was sharing with my wife that I've never had the experience to walk to any of the stores, Best Buy stores or anybody else that sells <laughs> printers or headset and get a hug from the manager. I'm not sure if I wanted the hug from manager, but <laughs> I know it's across mine. And uh, here, uh, every store we went to, a store manager, manager was like so personal, so passionate. It was, you felt welcome. You, they would, you felt like they're trying to figure out, go out of their way to make you succeed rather than trying to get the next dollar out. And that you cannot help yourself, but keep pushing on that front. And also the team, uh, the local uh, team that we gathered, uh, which we have been able to duplicate for most part in the Steelport, uh, the dedicate that the team has had is nobody in our team. I am looking back. I can't think about anybody that was just showing up for dollars and was looking at this as a job. Everybody was kind of passionate about, yes, we can do it. We are going to make something better. It's something I want to use at home. It's something that everybody um, was proudly uh, sharing with their family and friends. And that was a realization that really came for me around the products we make. Making local is not just simply keeping dollars local or uh, trying to create jobs. Yes, those are true. But you actually make a better quality product because you're not making a product or delivering service that's to a faceless person you know, 4,000 miles away. These are first and foremost, uh, people know you, friends, family, and you're standing behind your product. You're standing behind your reputation. You're standing behind your brand. And that was just something that I had not experienced that directly uh, before. You know, if you deliver something not quite perfect, uh, not only you're feeling bad about it, but somebody's coming back and <laughs> well, oh, they yeah, were like your they were like your college buddies trying your food. They were they were happy to have it and they they'd help make it better. For the uninitiated, can you talk? I'm sure you can do the quick elevator speech for your former company, Finex, and talk about what was so unique about it that caused people to be so passionate. Um, you know, I could do that, but better to hear it from your yeah, from your absolutely. perspective. So the foundation of Finex was that we wanted to make something that uh, looked, uh, we called it modern heirloom. Uh, We wanted something that was heirloom quality, high quality, lasted for generation, 
you know, you pass it on to your loved ones. But at the same time, it was beautiful and functional. There was something new brought in. So uh, uh, it, uh, the couple of key features on the product that we in introduced, uh, uh, one was absolutely everything U.S. sourced. Uh, from functionality, we went from round to eight-sided uh, octagonal um, pan. Multiple reasons for that, including that the octagonal shape allows you to have multiple pouring spouts from different locations. At the same time, allows you to put a lid, an octagonal lid, at top of the skillet and cover all the uh, uh, spouts without letting steam out uh, if you wanted to do that cooking. Uh, the, the other uh, distinct uh, feature was spring handle. We copied that idea from the old-fashioned stoves. If you have any, you have seen around the kind of old spring handle. It's cool to the touch. It takes longer uh, to heat up and faster uh, to uh, cool off. And the third key feature was that we actually went back to machining the bottom uh, of the skillet. And what that allowed it is allowed the more better contact of the food to the skillet, but also it was like years of years of using the product machining kind of smoothed out all the uh, all the rough surfaces to give you the kind of a much better cooking experience uh, going forward. So seasoning made easier, the cooking made easier. Those were three uh, key uh, functional features that we added. So that, that actually turned out to be very well accepted uh, by the industry, and then we expanded from our original 12-inch uh, skillet to the full product line. And uh, when we started, obviously we didn't know, besides uh, me and my business partner and a couple of other people, anybody would like it or not. So we put it on Kickstarter, uh, and uh, within one month we had 1,600 backers, and we raised about 210000 so that was kind of our trigger uh, to, yep, we have something here. And, uh, you know, that was more, more than uh, me and my business partners, a number of uncles and aunts. Uh, so we know there's this general public uh, acknowledgement there. And uh, it was both functionality, the fact it was U.S. source, something that it could compete with a high-end premium. If you wanted high-end premium, cast iron, you don't have to go and buy it from France or buy it from somewhere else. You can actually buy it U.S. And one of the things I'm proud of is not only that we had that, uh, that product and the company was successful, but also uh, the fact that within like three or four years, there were four or five other companies that started to make heirloom, high-quality, high-end, uh, American-made uh, skillets, cast iron skillet. And if I take you back to how I started the whole thing, the reason I wanted to bring in some of that pride and translate that into action in the U.S., not just have one successful company. Uh, I think one successful company is great, but it doesn't change industry. And looking back, now we have an industry, people automatically don't think about, oh, if you want a uh, premium castle and you have to go outside of the country, there's four or five options you have. Finex just happened to be one of them, which I personally think is the best one, but <laughs> I'm, I'm much happier to have something to compare with. <laughs> 
Well, also, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So uh, that must have been interesting, you know, with your engineer's eyes to look at it as opposed to a lot of people. You know, I, I often watch the machines and the cars that built America and the food that built America. Those guys were so competitive. If they saw something else coming up, they were... It seemed to me, I mean, this is just a depiction that we get in 2000, in the yeah. 2000s, but it seemed to me that they were less interested in what they were doing and more interested in just crushing them. So, um, but you looked at it, I think it sounds like you looked at it with more of a critical eye from an engineer's perspective. What are they doing? What could we maybe do better? And in the end, let's feel better about ourselves because we have a better product. Yeah, that. That could be. I haven't done a full analysis of that, and I think is as much to do with I viewed it more as a user perspective because I'm also user of big user of Finex <laughs> mm-hmm. product. Is as a user, I like to have options. Uh, I might still choose Finex, but I don't want to be cornered and have to use that. So as a is a as a user, kind of driven by that aspect. And then during that time frame, uh, we were. You know, I was thinking about the the original name for Finex, as a formal name for Finex, was Finex Kitchenware Inc. And uh, the idea was that beyond uh, skillets. Uh, but in uh, 2019, we need uh, uh, we needed to get some more cash to expand because we're going internationally, nationally. Uh, so we find a great partner uh, to um, tra- uh, transition to Enlarge. Enlarge is you know, famous. U.S. made, but they wanted to have something on the premium angle, and Finex was an obvious addition to the lineup. But this was the first and the only acquisition they have had in 126 years. Uh, so it was wow. uh, stuff. Uh, and uh, I'm very happy with that transitions um, for a couple of reasons. One, is, the primary one is when we got to the point of we need additional investors and other people taking over. I had two requirements. One was to keep the headquarter in the Portland, this was a this Portland written on the back of every skillet. Uh, it wasn't going to go anywhere else. And uh, and uh, second requirement was that uh, keeping our key staff uh, continuing. Uh, the I did you know I'd seen some other brands uh, that sold and it fell apart. Headquarters moved and things like that. And you know as you see my history. I've lived in Portland. I'm not planning going anywhere, and I want to be able to walk in the streets and not be <laughs> ashamed of anything that we have done. And uh, we had at the, at the time we had about five people that were interested in the company, and Lodge was the natural one because the American source. They were dedicated to have the uh, building. The building still Northwest 21st uh, uh, in Portland area, and the my, you know, the team is still there working hard, uh, growing the business and at the same time it also freed me up to start thinking about what's next and i you know knife is a natural one next actually turns on knife if you look at your own kitchen and usage knife is used more than a skillet uh mm-hmm. so because you have to even cut stuff for your salad and instead you need the well skillet plus for there's salad. other ways to cook other than cast iron too exactly. so exactly you, can you, got, you gotta get you gotta use the knife before it goes into anything so yeah. yes that makes sense so, but I, the whole uh, still board was kind of on the f- same foundation of, you know, we want to have iconic design. That's the first pillar. We want something that our customers would proudly showcase it in their countertop and, you know, be happy to have it in the addition of the kitchen. 
uh, with the findings, especially we found out that if people are not don't look like it looks, ends up in the bottom of the drawer, ends up in your garage and things like that. So iconic design was an important part of Steelport. The second pillar we had is I never want to make a hood ornament, something that looks pretty, but there's no functionality uh, to it. So everything we did has to have some function about it, some benefit uh, to the user. And the third pillar we have is uh, you all everything US sourced, locally handcrafted. So with those three kind of guide rails, started looking at Steelport, and uh, I'm, I'm, I love cooking, I've done cooking, I've experienced in areas, but I haven't spent uh, 20, 30 years with knives. So one of the things I really wanted to do is find a partner that lives, breathes uh, knives, and uh, was lucky to come across uh, Eitan Zias, and uh, it just happened to be perfect time for him. He had been, you know, 20 years, uh, you know, in knife. He started as a busboy and became a chef and knife sharpening and uh, selling knives. And at the time, just, he had been. Uh, yeah. Let me interrupt. Program note: We have uh, two interviews with Aton, so um, anybody's welcome to go back and just search that in our search bar or wherever you listen to podcasts as well as a as an adjunct to this. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. I thought that was a good time to mention that. Absolutely, I recommend that uh, highly. And uh, he had been spending like last ten years making knives, but you know, typical artisan knives. They're very good in the U.S., but you can make only one. And it, uh, so we kind of joined forces and spent the whole COVID years, uh, 2020 and through 2000, early 2021, developing, perfecting. What is the best knife possible? It was extremely important for us to be locally made American knife, yes, but first and foremost, best knife you can use that just happened to be locally made versus uh, you have to compromise anything for it. So we came up with this tagline of craftsmanship without compromise, and then we have stayed true to that. So uh, we have not tried uh, our best uh, not to cut any corners, not to no pun uh, intended. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, uh, so we have been successful. Uh, you know, our first knife was an eight-inch uh, chef knife uh, that looks um, uh, pretty unique, uh, but at the same time, it's functional. It's designed uh, for um, pinch hold, kind of comfortable in different handles, contoured um, uh, wood, uh, Oregon maple. Would handle finger hole, posters uh, uh, that's curved and fits in your hand, fully functional sharp knife that's also very comfortable in your hand. And to do that, one of the we had to bring in two new things to the plate. One is drop forged uh, carbon steel, uh, so that's where it's starting from. We start from a rod of carbon steel and drop forged in the shape of the uh, the blade. It's kind of funny because if I ask anybody what is what do you think the knives are made, how the knives are made, uh, a picture of uh, a blacksmith hammering down a, a red uh, hot uh, rod comes to mind. It turns out if you do go gross, uh, to go to any of the stores, from national stores to local chains, uh, all the knives are uh, you know sheets of metal that cookie cutter or stamped into the shape. 
uh, all stainless steel and they're all from Japan, Germany, and uh, China. Uh, but that forging is the best way of making uh, anything, especially knives. So if we brought that back, it's kind of funny to say brought back because you would imagine that has been around. But that's one differentiation. The second uh, differentiation is our heat treatment. Um, uh, making making knife is analogous to baking a cake. It's very important to start from good ingredients. That's our carbon steel and drop forging. But it's also important to put in the oven at the right to the right time and right temperature. And then that's our heat treatment. That took a lot of effort, uh, something about close to 200 samples and 33 experiments going through it. Here's my engineering <laughs> aspects coming through. And we were able to achieve the hardest steel in the industry at 65 Rockwell hardness. And uh, at the same time, tough enough that we tested it with uh, not chipping on brass rod at the same time to be sharpenable. So those are kind of some of the details on the knife that gets us, gets us excited and kind of knife, knife nerdy. Let me pause here and see how you're doing, Chris. Pardon me? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a great... Yeah. Hey, I'll leave it to you to do the, uh, no, no, the lead-in to the commercial break. Yeah, that's fine. Um, you, uh, you had uh, the picture froze, so I just want to make sure they can still hear me. So that's... Uh, that's oh, the, no, you're uh, still there, but okay. let's take this opportunity to uh, hear from our friends or hear about our friends at ringside and then we'll come back hey chris let's pause just a moment here during the podcast and talk about one of our favorite places to eat a portland institution in fact portland steakhouse for over 78 years it's ringside steakhouse right and so of course ringside is known for having the best steak steaks around and you'd have to to be around for over 78 years but what I think is something to consider for anybody listening out there is they offer a Thanksgiving dinner for six that you can pick up the day before Thanksgiving. And it includes, uh, so seven to eight roast, seven to eight pound roasted bone in turkey breast, artisan bread stuffing, green beans, whipped potatoes, and pumpkin pie. That's, and it includes enough for leftovers, as they say. So if you only have four, you're really going to have some leftovers. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. It's $230, but think about what it would cost to go and pick all those ingredients up and do all the work. Um, you're going to spend more than $230 in today's grocery world, I would think. And uh, it's a good deal. And it's from Ringside. And it's easy. So there you go. So you want to go to ringsidesteakhouse.com. You can uh, order your Thanksgiving kit there. Also, you know, maybe make a reservations for an upcoming, uh, I don't know, night out with whomever. Uh, the restaurant hours, super easy, 5 to 9, Monday through Thursday. And then on the weekends, they open a little earlier and close a little later. But again, you can see all that on the website. Uh, they have also going to have some holiday hours that take effect starting November 25th. That's the day after Thanksgiving. And it's a great place to celebrate the holidays and life at Ringside. Always a really special occasion whenever you walk through the doors. Mm-hmm. Reservations again at ringsidesteakhouse.com or as I like to do, just open up that open table app. All right, so we're back with Ron Cormier and uh, talking about Steelport. And what I find very interesting is uh, the concept of getting to some of the best implements in our kitchen, you know, through through some of the 
earliest uh, technology we've ever had, which is forging. And, um, and I have to say, you know, you talked about, uh, I didn't want to re- interrupt you there, but you talked about one of the goals was to have something beautiful in the kitchen to display. When I saw your knife block that you just introduced, I, in my mind, you know, I've kind of followed what, what you've been doing all along. But when I saw that, I thought, well, there it is. That's, that's the, the, that's the golden goose. That's the grail. There, there's a place to display it because I have some nice knives that are, you know, my whole setup is now in my drawer. And I pull out, I open that drawer a lot, but it would be really nice to have that. And that is what you've done with your block is so beautiful. And it just leads one to say, all right, I need that block. But yeah, I guess I need the knives to put on there too. So there you go. You've got your sets available now and you're, you're there. And listen, from start, you talked about starting during the pandemic. And where you are today, that's not a long period of time to have developed such an incredible product that people are buying and get to the point where, um, you know, you've got a full complement of, um, uh, products that you can, that you can sell that people would want. Yeah. I think, uh, uh just coming back to the knife blog, this are the latest introductions and really to your point, uh, Chris, it caps the lineup. It really uh, allows the showcase and also functionality. And it, it's kind of funny because you know a lot of uh, companies knife block comes out pretty quickly. Uh, if you remember, out of our three pillars, it didn't. Uh, it we could easily make a knife block that was um, is iconic design, you know, nice design. We could make a knife block in that's Pacific Northwest space. You know, our knife block has a um, uh, Oregon walnut, uh, black walnut, and uh, solid steel. Uh, the hard part for us in every one of our product is making sure the third, the all three pillars are there, which is the third one is functional. We just didn't want to make just another knife block. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our, this particular knife block not only has those features and magnetic uh, wood um, uh, backing, but it also has a curved base that allows an opening for hand to go and grab the handle of the knife much easier, much safer behind that. So there's a functional reason behind that particular design not only looks unique and nice and beautiful aesthetically but it's also functional and it takes a while uh, to come up with a, that functionality before we introduced it uh, but yeah uh, coming uh, we uh, given you know uh, i've been involved with 10 or 11 startups over my career and uh, as a side note i'm also uh, i've been since 2010 has been adjunct professor at portland state university and i'm a full-time faculty at oregon state so i have got a chance to see different companies and different life cycles even beyond my direct uh, visibility uh, steelport has been ramping up uh, pretty fast and and uh, for mainly because we are not necessarily starting from zero uh, obviously i'm bringing a lot of uh, my experience and knowing what not to do uh, Aton again bringing 20 years of uh, answering questions from ex to chefs and other people about you know how what is the best knife uh, which part of the handle people like which part of the place we we like we were able to put all that knowledge together so our first knife when it came out it got great praise uh, from the users from uh, media from other uh, other um, sources of reference so there was high level of trust and a real 
functionality versus just yet another knife with the same uh, capabilities. Well, again, uh, going back to my Finex experience, if I uh, if I can refer back to it, one of the strengths was the the kind of the team that we had ourselves and our support suppliers, and that has been doubly proven in Steelport. Uh, the team we have uh, is um, all extremely dedicated. Uh, we are fully every uh, every member of the team has a. Uh, stock options so we are you know fully employee owned uh, company so there's a lot of uh, personal um, values in the place and from day one we were able to get some of the best people to come in and help us as a part of the team and not just as a bypass uh, advice and that has been i think the huge difference and we have amazing su- uh, supply base and partners locally and uh, uh, there's several of them that I'm amazed at how far they have gone to support our uh, Steelport brand as as if it was their own brand, uh, from the highest quality deliverable to giving us advice to uh, cutting a small uh, cutting a lot of slack for a small uh, company to being our customers. Uh, one of them uh, has been you know, last year was one of our. Uh, they bought like 20 knives, uh, more than that, probably 20, 25 last year, as a gift to their their own employees because they were so pri- proud of being involved with a locally made premium knife. Those are, you can help it, but <laughs> be energized by it yourself and really help the company grow quickly and, uh, and fast. So uh, I think two years uh, is very quick where we are uh, at the same time is all on the shoulder of I think our own amazing team and the community that's been stepping up uh, supporting it so uh, maybe maybe uh, people like myself are slowing it down <laughs> no I don't think so but it's it's quite interesting when you talk about <clears throat> the importance of Portland in the equation because it is no secret that our restaurant industry here was very unique, is very unique, and started out the one of the unique aspects was the, the ability of chefs and farmers to collaborate because the farms were so close based on, you know, the, the way the zoning and the, the way that uh, Portland developed or didn't develop actually. And so uh, it's very interesting that there's another aspect to that that can be beneficial to a product like yours. You're not growing produce, but you can still have the same relationships with chefs and people in the industry that, that is beneficial to both parties, which in, in turn, you know, goes right to the consumer and consumers are involved with markets and farmers markets too. So they're going to want to go direct to you and, work with your products the same way they do with the farmer's products. It's very interesting that there's a parallel there, and it all has to do with that unique aspect to Portland, which is, you know, it's people, it's everybody's very passionate, and that everyone supports local. And, I, you know, I one point I didn't make when you were back talking about Finex is for someone who cared so much about the connection to the community, and you did, it had to be very risky to sell to anybody because in this 
in Oregon or Portland, immediately, if someone becomes bigger and successful, they have to, they have, to, they have baggage, which is they sold out. And you, you, you covered it. You, you alluded to it that it was very important to you to keep that Portland connection with Finex going in order to sell it. And you can't always, right? I don't know how you structured that, but you can't always control that, right? There's a certain period of time after which the new owners can say, well, we're going to do what we want. Is that true? Or I think uh, what you can do is uh, be smart, smart about um, the contracts and agreements and things like that. But more importantly, uh, you have to you have to sell you're selling to people it's not uh, every transactions we do is not to just uh, to a corporation it's to people behind knowing people behind it but it's driving them and making sure mm-hmm. that there's a win-win situation it's not just dollar transactions so that's and to you uh, as you were highlighting you were saying it was important to me uh, it was more than important it was to me it was required that uh, finex keeps portland uh uh nature and roots in it uh, again uh, finex was successful because of portland people and uh, it would mean i don't think it would have, i don't personally uh, was against would work against my values uh, to not continue benefiting uh, f- uh, local community now four years five years six years after sale at a certain point you know uh, i don't know at a certain point you're uh, influence and every idea that you have uh, fares out, uh, but I'm hoping that uh, that continues for a long, long, uh, long time. But the other thing I want to highlight about the Portland that's very different, I mean, I've worked and ran small companies uh, in up and down West, West Coast. What I found in Portland is amazing level of patience and willingness to give without expecting anything back. Uh, I, I mean that in everywhere from business. I, I think for the price of coffee in Portland, you can get anybody's ear. Uh, just I've, I've not come across a case that somebody would turn me down. Uh, and I can't think about any time that I've turned on anybody that was looking for advice, looking for support. And that goes all the way to our restaurant business chefs. Uh, I'm amazed by uh, the help we got through uh, Finex and even Stillport as we started, you know, uh, people like Katie Miller, people like Gabe Rocker, big names, famous stuff, stepping out and really helping Stillport. And, you know, uh, you go places, other places, big cities, uh, uh, you know, people will say, okay, pay me X dollar number of dollars before I can, uh, you know, support you or mention you and things like that. And we have big name local uh chefs, uh, wonderful local chefs that might not have big names that are really stepping out and uh, using Stillport, talking about it, telling their staff about it, and constantly asking us, you know, how can we help? And that's really, really humbling. And um, I'm not sure how many other uh, cities can claim claim that. And, uh, I'm, you know, besides creating kind of our culture and uh, that kind of nature i'm not sure what else i can credit to and that's the part i'm really hoping that we continue supporting i I think that's been and that's been that's been the thread that i recognized when i started eating out here is that in no other city and maybe there are now i think that portland has 
um, has permeated some of the you know some of the scenes around the country. They've learned from Portland or they've seen it, and it kind of makes sense. And um, but one of the things that struck me, and I've said this before, were, were chefs telling you where to go to eat. And that they would recommend other restaurants wholeheartedly, yep. and uh, that wouldn't. When it, where I came from in Connecticut, there was no way that was going to happen, and that's that's why we're here today because I started, you know, this little collaborative events that highlighted that that spirit, and so you're feeling it in a product as well, and it's it's really cool. I'm a little concerned with where it's going to go. Um, I think it's still there, but I mean, all those, the folks that I met that initially embodied all of that spirit are not all of them, but a large percentage are gone. You know, my friends, Vitaly Paley and, you know, John Gorham, all those people who did a lot of wonderful things with it just to, as part of the community are not here any longer. I would imagine that's still around, but it makes me sad that we're starting all over, not starting all over, but we're just working from a different spot than we were before. It is especially, it's definitely sad uh, to lose some uh, major talents and things like that, but I'm an optimist. Uh, maybe that's just the nature of uh, being an entrepreneur. You have to be optimist. But I'm saying that the spirit uh, all over. Uh, I'm, I've, you know, from restaurants, re- recommend the other restaurants. I was just uh, uh, recently as uh, kids artisan bakery talking to uh, owners Melissa and Theo, and I, I love, uh, you know, uh, baguettes. There, especially their baguettes are just amazing. And they were telling me, okay. You can go to this place, this other place, the third place that has similar, you know, quality baguettes. You know, there are, one is in Eastside, one is closer to Vancouver. And like, wow, you know, how many businesses in other cities that would kind of go out of their way to make sure that you as a fellow Portlander, as a fellow uh, customer are fully satisfied. So what if you don't buy it directly from from them? It's not, not all, all money-wise. And I think that's bubbling up. Uh, you know, uh, we have uh, other. Uh, I'm really excited. You know, uh, you know, all. You know, I call him old timer now, but you know, hope he doesn't mind. Gabe Rocker start opening up a canard in uh, Oregon City. Uh, Gregory kind of making uh, splashes. Uh, Gregory Gorday. Uh, that's right. I think uh, um, the stuff, and then also some uh, some upcoming quieter uh, people like uh, Alex uh, Saw starting Rangoon, kind of a Burmese uh, place in Southeast. Those are places that not necessarily have a famous chefs, wonderful food, and uh, maybe not quite Instagram personality, but I think they will have uh, bring up uh, kind of the wave, the next wave. And maybe that's, you know, that's actually healthy. You know, turnovers are part of the uh, nature. We need fresh blood and fresh excitement uh, to make that happen. And the other thing I want to highlight on, on that one is that I'm also saying uh, companies like Steelport, like our, our company, uh, are extremely sensitive about not only our product and our company, but community. Uh, we have multiple events. We, we have a, uh, You have got a chance to see it. We have a nice location in our factory on... Um, Northeast uh, Sandy Boulevard and 36th, uh, 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 Northeast uh, and 3602 Northeast Sandy Boulevard. It's kind of a uh, parking lot and two big garages are open up and things like that. And we have found it that we can actually create events there and invite locally other minded 
uh, people and we have multiple events throughout the year with two big ones one is around Father's Day and the other one is coming up on November 19th uh, noontime 12 to 3 that we actually invite maybe up to 10 other brands uh, to show up and have kind of tables for local customers and other people to come in and not just necessarily just hear about the steel port and things like that but our customers are probably interested in the premium uh, wine to something that's locally made cheese or something that uh, uh, you know uh, frame beer and you know uh, Ken's Artisan Bakery and uh, a couple of uh, famous chef uh, Doggy uh, is coming in on 19th uh, as our chef and uh, with his new restaurant, he's so busy opening up his new location, was freeing up the time to come 19 the next day. That's uh, uh, that's Doug Adams. Yes, right. That yeah. you're Sorry, referring yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, Doug Adams. Yeah, and uh, those are you know, uh, I think those trends I see, uh, and I still port. I don't think it's necessarily unique, but this opportunity to bring similar brands together. Uh, we are close to Hollywood District, kind of bring life back into uh, or help uh, that community kind of grow uh, wonderful neighborhoods, Lauren Hearst and Hollywood and uh, people just driving in and out of uh, downtown, a place for them to stop, not necessarily to shop or anything like that, but get exposed to different uh, brands, especially now before holidays, it's a good good time. (laughs) Well, I want to address also when you're talking about local as well, when I was in chatting with you last week and you were showing me how uh, some of the operation and how the knives were made, uh, in typical Portlandia fashion, you're dipping your knives in coffee. And um, where else would that happen? And of course, I had to ask you, which coffee are you using? And I think that's kind of funny, because I, I, I can just imagine in Portlandia, somebody saying, well, I, that's not my coffee brand. I can't buy that knife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but it's a great example of so Portland. I mean, uh, Coava Coffee has been a great partner with us, the leftover coffee for us to use. And we use that to do a factory for Patina on the knives, that's what the color and provides a protection. But if you really Portlandia, if you remember, I showed you the bush bushes and the plants outside that get the leftover coffee after we use them as a fertilizer for the bush. So then <laughs> that's a true Portlandia fashion that we kind of con- complete, right. uh, complete the area. Uh, but on more serious side, you know, we talked about earlier about uh, what drives us uh, to make these products is still poor and before that for me Finex is definitely high quality definitely seeing the uh, uh, product successful and manufacturing and all the benefits that comes with it but there is a there was an unexpected one that I saw in Finex and I and uh, at Stillport is the emotional um, uh, value that we add to our customers um, I think when you were there uh, there was a one of our customers that walk in that I had never met before, and he, you know, when we were talking, he comes over. I just his name is stuck in my mind. Richard comes over and shakes hand and says, "Hey, I've used your Phoenix product. I love Steelport," and you know, tells me you know how is it, how is he using it and where stuff he's using it. They're like, "Oh, it's not just a simple. Oh, I cut a tomato easier." Right. And then the, a couple of days ago, we, we uh, you know, last week we introduced our. A knife block that we talked about briefly. There was another customer 
that bought the knife block and he already had the, most of the products, so he completed his product and added it to the kitchen and then took a picture of his kitchen. And he had a wall, he had made a special display with all the Finex products hang on the wall and the knife block with all the steel port on, on his countertop. And the other thing, the only other thing in the kitchen besides the countertop, and his, it was a pretty high-end uh, kitchen with the Vikings <laughs> uh, uh, stovetop and uh, oven in there, was a, uh, a knife block. And uh, no, it was a, a cutting board. And his question was, that's so when is the cutting board when, coming when, out? When, when. And I thought that was like, you know what, there is, a, there is more than just functionality uh, uh, is people and our customers and especially local community from chef or home chef or restaurant chef we are we have created a community that's all we are all on the same journey from different aspects of it the culinary expertise that our local chefs making kind of complements what we are trying to do with the cookware complements with somebody else working on the sauce and complements uh, chris your work with kind of bringing visibility to a lot of those things and coming back to, I think that's the strength of Portland. How do we get that uh, flywheel keep going and keep going faster? Yes, we hit a bump with COVID, but we have to make it just a bump. Uh, and that's, it takes a little bit of energy and kind of following um, uh, this. Right, and, it's, and I think the thing about the last two years, I won't necessarily put it all on COVID, but is that... Um, you know, it's more. It's a little different to open a restaurant now or open a business than it was a few years ago. There are new challenges, and there are higher costs that are going to have to be borne by somebody in order for a lot of these places to stay in business. And that's my, that's that's one of the concerns I have. Uh, I think you've got um, a wonderful product that is perfectly positioned for this market and a lot of other markets. Um, you've got to expand outside of Portland, I would think. And that's got to be your challenge. That's got to be a big challenge because you've invested so much in the Portland brand with your brand. And, you know, how does it play in San Diego? And Sorry, I'm high energy in this topic. So it actually does, does really well. I mean, Finex, we made a decision to put Portland, Oregon, cast it in, the, <laughs> in our mold. Uh, and that's, that's sold internationally. It has been sold internationally for many years. And it's still, we are excited because not only we are sold in some like 60 stores in, I, didn't, I forgot the number, like over 20 states. Uh, we are also sold now in uh, Canada, in four places, stores in Canada. And the biggest news uh, over the last couple of weeks, but also... We, for the first time, uh, we got introduced in Japan, in Tokyo, in the store in Tokyo. And uh, that's, as you can imagine, that was a big deal because uh, uh, Japanese do not like import knives, especially because there's a lot of history and pride that goes in there. as vice versa. In the U.S., there's a lot of stores that only carry Japanese um, products. So that was a big thing we actually Tokyo, and uh, to their credit, uh, they took them one year of evaluation. They grabbed our knives and uh, took it through cutting, toughing, asking questions. You know, how does what is it, how is it even possible to get 65 Rockwell, which is 11 inch of hardness? How, how is it to get the hardest is still and is still be able to sharpen it and it's still tough enough that it doesn't chip? You know, you guys, is it real? And 
they had to actually go through a year uh, because it was extremely important for them because they have a they have some explanation to internally why you're doing what are you doing with them right they got ego involved (laughs) major ego involved so i think we are we're on a track internationally but again our food is very solidly local and we are behind portland there's other brands uh that uh, have lived through that and i'm personally hoping that we can create a community you know uh, letterman is a good example of local company that's proudly carries uh, portland names on it and there's multiple other companies that are sold nationally and i'm hoping that we can create and uh, uh bring shine back and actually build in maybe even a stronger city. Portland brand. I find, it, I find it interesting because the transactional part of me, which, by the way, as business people, we all have to have some of that. Um, but the transactional part of me, for the, my first thought was, well, maybe you need, may, maybe there should be, I mean, sh- maybe Portland should charge a licensing fee for you being able to do that. And then immediately I went, no, you, they should be paying you for bringing the uh, Portland name all over the world. Yeah. So there you go. In typical Portland fashion, it's a win-win Absolutely. for both. Nobody's asking for anything. And I have to say, you've caused me to sit back as someone who can be transactional. It's just trying to, trying to get through life and make a living to think about, you know, some of the important things that have helped uh, propel whatever I've done along personally and business wise. And so I think when you, you know, you talk about authenticity and that's what you that's what you've got as is the common thread through everything that you do. It's completely authentic and it's high quality too. So uh, in order for, in order for you to want it to be authentic, it's got to be high quality to get there. So, um, so I notice you have no gray hair whatsoever. <laughs> and I want to know what, what, what things in your life might have caused you to get gray hair if you had those genetics. But do you also think, um, you know, what you're doing is very hard work and it's not easy, but you obviously enjoy it a lot. Do you, uh, what do you foresee for your future that might cause a little gray hair? Because you're not sure. You don't know about it. You, the, the future is the abstract. The present is very clear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I really like your comment around authenticity. And uh, at least my experience has been, you don't seek out authenticity. You don't uh, take no. it. Uh, you, you live you it. You can't buy and, it. Yeah. You live it and you don't. It shouldn't be thought about. You're just living through it. And my experience, maybe I've been uh, very fortunate, this is very likely, is uh, two factors. One is that when I've done authentic and I've gone through just doing the best I can, short term, yes, uh, I could have earned more money, I could have made more friends, or I could have X, Y, Z, gotten more stuff. But long term, every time the decision was the right one to just live your values and it happens. And Portland especially allows you, I think, uh, one of the, you can keep coming back to Portland team, allows you the breather uh, to go through it. I remember the five years I was living in uh, San Diego, everybody was stressed because if they lost their job for one month uh, at a million dollar homes, the mortgages would make them homeless immediately. Uh, Portland, you know, we're getting more expensive, but still there's places that you can go, it's, it's acceptable to live on a couch on a friend's uh, place and things like that, and some other places is not. Uh, but I think if you can somehow manage to think long-term, right things, 
uh, right things uh, happen. So I think that's that's one underlying has been going on. The big, uh, uh, I, I'm not necessarily have any particular worries in the future, like you were saying, kind of getting white hair because uh, I've accepted the fact that uh, tough things is going to come. If it didn't come, the life would be extremely boring. I know it's a little bit of a um, privileged uh, kind of language uh, type thing. I'm fortunate enough, and I understand I'm fortunate enough uh, to have kind of food to eat at dinner and a, a place, warm place to go to. Uh, but the other challenges I expected to come. I would be surprised, actually, if there is not challenge, if something doesn't completely go wrong, I wonder, uh, are we pushing the limits properly? And like you were, again, uh, you were using example of Portland. The one thing about Portland is that we have a lot of failures. A lot of restaurants don't make it after the first six months. And you can thread that and say it's terrible, but as long as the owner, entrepreneur, the chef gets a chance to start a new one, I consider that success because we, he learned something, she learned something. Uh, they figured some new ways of doing it, and we have to continue doing that. And that's what my personal life is. Now, if you go back to my life, you know, as a teenager living alone and then earlier going through living through a revolution, maybe it gave me a grounding that. What can possibly happen? That's <laughs> worse than that, you know. <laughs> uh, like uh, so, I think maybe I have a little bit of a more uh, uh, stoic uh, uh, view of life. Uh, you know, COVID was definitely upside down, but it wasn't. It wasn't as drastic as some other stuff that could happen, and we could see it in our lifetimes. Uh, we just have to keep coming back to authenticity and how do we rely on each other and how do we uh, don't lose our humanity? Uh, because I was saying, there's a couple of factors. The other uh, thing I've learned through my life and I've been privileged maybe is I probably met, I don't know, tens of thousands of people in my life. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't count. I yet to come across a single person that woke up in the morning and saying, I want to make Ron's life miserable just for sake of making Ron's miserable. I've not come across a single person doing that. Yes, I've come across people that try to hurt me, try to make me fail and things like that but there was always a reason for it they either thought i was attacking them or they thought that my business was attacking them or uh they misunderstood something happening in the environment but never was just for the hell of it i want to hurt on i mean it's never yeah no it's, that. There, there is a reason and you want to stay away from giving people reasons yeah, as it, much as possible that goes back to yeah, authenticity yeah. i suppose yeah. although some people are horrible assholes in their authenticity <laughs> as well so yeah. But there's always but, a reason I've learned so. I appreciate hearing your perspective because one of the things that I have tried to become, and I, as a matter of course, have become a little better at, and I've been doing this a lot lately, especially since the pandemic, is uh, with age, the wisdom of knowing that if you back up and look at the larger picture, it often doesn't everything isn't as daunting as you think it is. I mean, we're in a strange political time right now. And if you just travel and and find out what people have been through in other cultures, as you went through as a child and and survived, what we have right now is kind of shitty in many ways. However, we're all still 
getting up in the morning and making our coffee and uh not everybody i shouldn't say that it's not we're at a point where you got to be careful about every single thing you say because it has to apply to everybody but it's true this is uh it's good not for us not to forget that uh, in our we're still in the bubble as much as we try and expand the bubble is still we're talking to and we're part of the community that has a minimum uh, right of, uh, exactly but religion. what i found is for me when things feel difficult is to i had this conversation with somebody yesterday is to back up and go man you could have been born 500 years ago we wouldn't have had a toilet mm-hmm. wouldn't have had electricity and so some of these challenges we have right now we're living at a very i mean depending on one's perspective we're living at one of the best times in life to be in, in the history of the planet to be alive. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so, and I think you recognize that. And I d- do, I think it's uh, nice that we went full circle back to your childhood to use that as perspective for, you know, what might, what you've done to grow your business with all the challenges you've kept going. And because they're nothing like you experienced. Earlier. I'm very optimist. Uh, uh, I see uh, younger 20 uh, something, uh, we have multiple uh, team members that under 20s and 30s and I see the same level of authenticity and the same conversation uh, the same level of ownership that I think is fundamental to succeed uh, you know if you own something if you believe on it and you're not looking for tit for tat good things happen to you good things happen to community good things happen. and I'm seeing that in companies like ourselves in a steel port so that gives me significant uh, high hope for the future and knowing how smart some of the people I'm working with are, uh, they're going to bypass anything that I did or anything that maybe I've seen this stuff. So I'm, I'm excited. Uh, uh, so you were asking what's the future. I'm hoping to just be part of the community and keep building and uh, keep seeing uh, wonderful things happen in Portland and overall. Well, we're, I think the, the city and the state and the world is uh, fortunate to have you along for that ride and some, and I would say leading us in many ways. And apart, as, as I touched on earlier, uh, you know, uh, an important part of our lives, you know, that, that Finex cookware is sitting on top of my stove all the time. And, uh, I think what you've developed is just, Awesome. And having a conversation with you now, a couple, I'm, I'm two conversations in and I hope to have more, um, with you, but, uh, we can learn a lot from your perspective as well. And I can, I can tell you, you cause, you have caused me to think quite a bit just in this little over an hour. And the one thing that I'm thinking is you're a busy guy and I really appreciate your taking the time to come this morning and thank spend more than I asked you to spend. So thank you. Thank you, Chris, for this opportunity, and it's great, uh, again, to have a little bit of a time to share some perspective and go down the memory lane. You don't get a chance to do that very often, so, again, uh, part of being part of the community is the best thing that we can offer and be part of, so thank you, and have a wonderful day, Chris. Oh, you too. Have a great day, and I look look forward to seeing you some more this month, and uh, wish you the best possible Steelport holiday season that you could possibly have, because you've got, you, you know, you caused me to think the other day, and I'm uh, going to talk to Court about this, we should just do a holiday gift show. Oh, and talk idea. about some, some great things. And b- before I go, this is important. 
Um, <laughs> talk a little bit about where people can access the product. Obviously, you can get the, you can go online. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, but also physically, um, and I understand you're going to be doing demos at Zoopans, which is fantastic. And but where can where else can people actually buy the product? You talked about your location on Sandy Boulevard. That's yeah, so there. Yeah, location on 3602 Northeast Sandy Boulevard. Customers can come over and see products being made, and also like events like November 19th noon event, come in and join and see some other brands. But locally, we also in some other wonderful places. Uh, Portland Knife House, uh, the old locations, four locations of Kitchen, uh, Caboodle, uh, Material PDX, uh, kind of those are local places that you can actually go in and touch and feel in addition to uh, to online. But I encourage uh, people to check us out uh, and also get out there and enjoy some of those stores. Uh, the physical being out there uh, is, you know. Uh, Isn't that is nice? Possible. Yeah, absolutely. To do that. And I would say with your product, you, yes, it's great if you want to order them online and have them delivered. And, you know, one of my fun pandemic discoveries was the fascination of watching the UPS truck come up the come up the highway and get to my place physically tracking. Oh. I know you don't have the time for that. I'm just sure about that. But some people like me. But on the other hand, your product lends itself to going out and physically holding it in your hand and talking about it and feeling the way it's going to feel when you're using it at home. So Yeah, but there's yes. the, a warning with that. Uh, we have had... Uh, amazing people look at it and looks beautiful but as soon as they pick it up and handle it then they have to buy it they feel they feel obligated to buy it because it feels so good so i just put a warning you know <laughs> oh okay well then then don't do that don't don't do that but no i would say i would say that too and um same thing with with everything that you've developed so thank you so much again ron we'll uh we'll be talking to you soon and we'll look forward to uh We'll look forward to having you you and or and Eitan on again so we can can talk about some of the successes and some of the experiences you've had uh, as you you mature in your business life. I'm looking forward. I like your idea of gift uh, show too. Maybe you should plan it on November 19th. Have it on our side. Have a live uh, recording or live session at onsite with uh, some of the brands. Let me just, the brands I'll, for just, you. <laughs> I'll just say yes for that, but All then right. now it's in your hands and court's hands as far as the technology <laughs> is concerned, because right. uh, I suppose we could do that, but we'll figure something out and we may or may not do that as part of an intro or, but I'd like to do a show on, you know, Portland products that are yeah, available and welcome. even some others, you know, I, I am so, uh, you know, sometimes I think I love, I use this product, for instance, peak design. You talk about products that are well designed, yeah. even though they're not Portland based, it's San Francisco based. Yeah. Oh, actually maybe down in Santa Barbara. I don't know. But I love those products, and, and I would like to endorse the, the things that I feel so passionately about. Yeah. And so that's, that's where the thought comes I think that makes sense. You have to be authentic to what you, know, uh, you believe and what you experience. So that makes a lot Well, of sense. the other thing is, it's, I have to say, it is, you know, it's not tit for tat for me to talk about peak design. I get nothing for that. I've been buying their products. I just feel that others would get joy out of using really great products like yours and theirs and yeah. others. And that's that's so. what we have benefited across the U.S. Uh, big famous chefs and influencers like that are just using a steel port. They like it and they talk about it. So I think uh, is. Uh, 
is important for everybody to know what is the best design and best products and best uh, experiences. All right, it can can hurt. Well, so, cool. So I would suggest people check into Steelport PDX, right? That's is it, or is, is it, it just Steelport? Is it Steelportknife.com? Uh, yeah, there you go. That makes knife. more sense. Yeah. Steelportknife.com. And then I'm, I'm sure that some information as to demos and other ideas with regard to certain chefs. I know throughout the pandemic, I really enjoyed watching chefs in their kitchens and seeing what they had okay. and how they were, you know, how they were preparing things. And we'll see more of those too. Absolutely. That's, Absolutely. that's a big part of what you do and how you're going to get it out there. So, all right, I'll stop. Uh, I haven't even had that much coffee because <laughs> it would be cold by now. So thank you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Gary. Have a great day, you guys. Okay, you too. Thanks. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right at the Fork.